Um, well, this morning uh, we have Dan preaching for us. So, Dan, do you want to come up? I'm going to pray for you before you start. Um, Lord Jesus, I thank you for Dan, Lord. I thank you for, um, Lord, just the rich deposit that he carries. Um, And Lord Jesus, I just pray that as he speaks this morning, Lord, that you would really use him mightily, Lord, to open your word, um, Lord, that your word would continue to challenge, shape, and transform us um, by your power, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Good morning, everyone. Good morning. How is everyone doing? Well, good. Okay. Um, those of you who don't know me, this is quite loud. Are we all good? For those of you who don't know me, my name's Dan, and um, my goodness, sorry, you, you know when you recognise someone that you haven't seen for years? I will chat to you later. Good to see you now. Um, yeah, my name's Dan, and um, I'll, I'll be preaching for the next um, 30 to 40 minutes, um, and we're in a, a series at the moment. We're doing a teaching series on a book in the New Testament called Philippians, uh, which was a book that was written by one of the early church leaders called Paul. You may have heard of him as St. Paul or the Apostle Paul, and um, he's writing to a church in Philippi, which is in kind of what is now modern-day Greece up in the north. Um, it's the first church that he'd planted in, in Europe, basically, so um, he's quite protective of this church, as you as you'll see as we, um, as we read today. But we've called this series Joy um, because this is a joy-filled letter. And it's a joy-filled letter that is showing joy in the midst of a situation, for Paul at least, where you wouldn't expect joy. He's in prison. Not, probably not the word we would associate with being in prison, and definitely not the word you would associate with being in prison in the Roman world. When you're in prison in the Roman world, you're not kept there as a punishment. You're kept there waiting to find out whether you're going to be executed or set free. So not, not a place that you would usually associate with joy. Um, but what you find through Philippians is that Paul is absolutely filled with joy. And the reason is, is that he is joyful in Christ. He's joyful in, in knowing Christ, which is what we're going to look at today. That's the, the title, Joy in Knowing Christ. And um, just gonna, I'm going to read the, uh, the passage in a few minutes. It's in Philippians 3, verses 1 to 11. So if you've got a Bible, you can... Um, open up and follow along, or the words will come up on the screen behind me. But um, just quickly, what's going on in this passage is you will get, probably get the sense from the first few verses that Paul is angry about something. And the reason he's angry is because he's heard that there are some uh, teachers or false teachers who have been influencing the the church in Philippi, um, who have been preaching something which, as far as Paul is concerned, is not the gospel. And so he's furious about this. These are different people, by the way. If you remember in chapter one, he was talking about some people proclaiming the gospel because they love Paul and some people proclaiming the gospel because they wanted to rub in the fact that he was in prison. These are different people. Paul was happy with the fact the gospel was being proclaimed in chapter one, regardless of the motives of the people who were doing it. In this chapter, he is not happy, regardless of their motives, with the, with the message that they're preaching. So he's addressing false teaching here. And I think just as an aside to make is this, this is one of the reasons why we value teaching and preaching so much um, in this church, why we spend a, a good chunk of time on a Sunday unpacking the word of God, um, because we want to avoid being basically swallowing stuff that is false, that is not true, and that actually will ruin our lives. And actually, this is also something that the elders here, so that's Richard and um, Steph, who's on sabbatical currently, who'll be back in a few weeks. Actually, part of their responsibility is to protect us from people who would intentionally spread stuff that is going to destroy us, who will intentionally spread stuff that's against the gospel. 
And so actually, it's, it's, it's helpful for us to know that as a church, that part of the responsibility of these guys as pastors is actually to be on the lookout for people who are coming in who are trying to spread teaching that is not in, in line with the gospel and are trying to cause division, are going to try, try and cause trouble. And so what they're doing in part is they're, they're guarding us. And so if you just you, be, be aware of that, and be aware if you're, I'm sure a lot of you may listen to podcasts and downloads online and you may hear some stuff sometimes you think, I'm not sure about that. Please go and chat to them. Part of, actually part of their responsibility before God is to care for you and to care for the stuff that, that basically that goes into your ears and influences your mind. So please do make, I was going to say make the most of them. It's that, that kind of makes, I think that, that puts a, a lower bar than what they're actually doing on. They're, they're, they stand before God accountable for protecting this church. So please do honour them in that as they do that. It's, it's a huge position of responsibility and we're very, very grateful for you guys doing that because they protect the church and they do it really well. But um, just kind of as a, almost as a side point, but actually as we read this passage, I want you guys to hear the pastor heart that Paul has where he's thinking, this is a church I've planted and I am aware of false teachers who are coming and I'm in prison at the moment, so the only way I can communicate with them is through this letter. And just imagine, you're, you're a pastor, you care about these people, and you're hearing that they are being fed teaching that is dangerous. That's the kind of thing that Paul's facing here. So we'll read the passage together. That's Philippians 3, verses 1 to 11. So finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. By the way, the finally is strange because there's two more chapters to go, but Paul does that sometimes. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So it suggests that he's going to write to them again about something he's already told them about. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. You may get the impression Paul's angry here and Paul's very, very emotional about what he's talking about because this really matters to him. But it might be helpful before we start unpacking this is to do a very, very brief history lesson so that you understand the world that Paul's living in and the kind of stuff that is being said that he may well be responding to. So just really brief history lesson. For those of you who love history, this will be great. For those of you who don't, it will be brief, but it will be helpful. 
So, a thing to remember when you're looking at a passage like this is Jesus was Jewish. He was a Jewish man, which meant he would have been circumcised, as all Jewish males would have been. He would have had to obey the law, obey particular dietary requirements, and so on. The earliest Christians were also Jewish. So Jesus' disciples came out of um, that people of God, out of, out of Judaism, and they were also Jewish. And they remained Jewish as Christians. They were Jewish Christians. And the gospel, first of all, was proclaimed to Jewish people. So the message was, Jesus is our Messiah. He's our chosen king that the scriptures were pointing to. He's the one who's come to liberate us and free us from our sins. So just bear that in mind. All of the earliest, earliest Christians were Jewish, and it comes out of Judaism. And actually, side comment, this would not have been true of most Christian Jews, I would imagine, but a lot of Jews in Jesus' day and Paul's day looked down on non-Jews quite heavily. In fact, they call them stuff like dogs, or they call them uncircumcised, or evildoers. Actually, circumcision was a big deal, because it was kind of that, that boundary marker. All of the, the Jewish people, uh, the, the men were circumcised. It was according to what the law had told them in the Old Testament. And actually, that was a bit of a boundary marker for them. They said, this, this, the fact that I am circumcised shows that I am different to these Greeks and these Romans who look down on that and I am I'm a Jewish person I belong to God's people so a lot of Jews in in Jesus and Paul's day looked down on non-Jews and would call them stuff like dogs um, evildoers the the uncircumcised was a almost a a slur which might sound a little bit odd to us but would have been kind of a a, an insult to be from their perspective and what happens and you can read about this in the book of Acts is the gospel eventually starts going out to non-Jewish people and they start responding to the gospel, and they start receiving the Holy Spirit, and they start getting baptised. And so at that point, there's a question that the earliest Christian leaders, so Jesus' disciples and some of the other early Christian leaders who, remember, were all Jewish, they needed to ask a question, which was basically, do non-Jewish people, when they become Christians, have to become Jewish in order to be part of God's people? That's the question they had to figure out. Okay, these non-Jews are responding to the gospel. They're being filled with the Spirit, which clearly means God is accepting them. Do they now need to be circumcised if they're male and added to the Jewish people? Or can they be a follower of Christ without becoming Jewish? And that's a question they dealt with in a council that you can read about in Acts 15. And the decision under the guidance of the Holy Spirit was no. If you are not a Jew, you do not need to become Jewish in order to be Christian. If you are a Jew, not a problem. Great. that's great, you've got that history behind you. If you're not a Jew, do not become Jewish in order to be part of God's people. That's not what saves you. And that was the decision the apostles made. That's the decision that the apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, was very happy with and passionate about, in fact. Um, But what happened is that a number of Jewish so-called Christians who didn't like this decision would go around to different churches made up of non-Jews and start teaching them stuff like, we love the fact you've responded to the gospel, but... In order to fully be part of God's people, you need to become Jewish. You need to be circumcised. You need to come under the law. And Paul hears about this, and that's why he gets very, very angry. And so um, we're going to look a little bit at what he, what he says to that, and we're going to look at Paul's own experience comes through in this chapter. Paul's own history comes through. Remember, Paul was a Jewish man, but yet he had a radically different view to what these false teachers were claiming. So we're going to look at that because it seems like the, those, the Philippians had been exposed to this kind of teaching and you might think does that, has that actually got any relevance to us nowadays because 
it's not exactly the kind of the, the kind of false teaching you get in the church that most people fall for now um, fall for nowadays. You don't tend to get people coming and say, "You guys, you've got to all be circumcised," and everyone say, "Yes, let's go and do it." That's not doesn't tend to be the way that a lot of the false teaching we get in in church and in, in Christianity nowadays would operate. But what are there? Is there any application for the the world that we live in? And I think there is. Because as we'll see throughout this particular passage, Paul associates this obsession with, not the fact that they're circumcised, but this obsession with having to be circumcised, having to become a Jewish person to be saved. He associates that with basically human effort and human background, what he calls the flesh, which is basically this, this idea that you're, the, of your own upbringing, your own human status having some kind of influence over your standing before God. So I don't know what it could be. It could be particular styles of worship. You say you can't really be a Christian unless this is the style of worship that you have. And don't assume because we have the slightly more, I don't know, musically, um, culturally relevant kind of music that we're not in trouble of falling into this. Don't assume it's always the traditional kind of style of worship that can fall into this. Actually, I think it can go both ways. It could be, and this is a bit of a stinger, in order to be Christian, you need to become middle class. I don't think anyone would say that. But I think sometimes that can be something that people absorb. That I, can't, I can't be part of that church. They all own houses. I don't. I can't fit there. It could be, about, like, it could be something like, do you need to abandon your own non-sinful cultural background if you become a Christian? Do you basically need to become a white British middle-class person if you want to be a Christian. So I think this is a huge relevance because particularly in the area we live in, we live in a massively multicultural, multi-ethnic society and I think we, we want to make sure we're not building a church that is saying, in order to be a Christian, culturally, here's the mould you need to fit. That would be a false gospel and I think Paul would get very angry about that. Um, so I think this has huge implications. But as you might notice, Paul doesn't mince his words. Okay? Look out for the dogs look out for the evildoers, look out for the mutilators of the flesh. And on one level, it's because he's very angry that he's saying this. But on another level, it's not incidental that he's using those terms. Remember what a lot of Jewish people used to, used to call Gentiles or non-Jewish people. They'd call, that would be, one of the common insults would be a dog. And Paul turns it around. He says, look out for... Not, he's not referring to Jews, he's referring to these Jewish Christian false teachers. He said, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for, and here, instead of saying, they would have called themselves the circumcision, which was kind of a, a badge of honour to wear at that point. And he says, look out for the mutilators of the flesh. Remember, Paul's circumcised. He, elsewhere, he says, circumcision is neither here nor there. But in this situation, he's saying, these guys who are insisting that you need to become Jewish are basically mutilators of the flesh. It's incredibly strong language. What he's doing is he's basically turning it around and he's saying, these guys who are claiming that in order to be Christian, you need to fit this particular mould culturally, and you need to become Jewish, they're actually, by their own works, proving that they don't actually belong to God's people. And in fact, Paul says, if you read a little bit on he says, for we, verse 3, for we are the circumcision. Some of your Bibles may have, for we are the real circumcision. It's a bit of a paraphrase. Literally, we are the circumcision. Which is a very odd thing, when you think about it, to write to a church of people who probably almost unanimously wouldn't have been circumcised because they wouldn't have come from a Jewish background. And Paul says, we are the circumcision. So what, is, what does Paul mean here? 
So these guys who are circumcised are actually false teachers, not part of God's people, mutilators of the flesh. We are the circumcision, Paul says. Now, I think what he means by that is he, he means to say the circumcision was, was what God's people called themselves at, at times. These are uncircumcised, non, they're not part of God's people. We are those who are circumcised and under the covenant of God. And Paul's saying, actually, guys, we're the ones who are part of God's people. In this particular contest, these, guys, these false teachers versus us, we're the ones who are part of God's people. But I think it goes deeper than that. Because um, if you know your Old Testament scriptures a bit, you may well have come across the expression circumcising the foreskin of your heart. Anyone come across that before? I'm sure some of you may have. Some of you, that might be, sound a bit confusing. It's an expression that's used in Deuteronomy where it talks about a, it talks about a new covenant basically being made where actually God's people are going to be restored and it says that God will circumcise the foreskin of their heart which is a way of saying God's going to bring transformation not just to the external person but to the to who you are right at the core and so actually when Paul says we are the circumcision saying you know what whether you are physically circumcised or not whether you are ethnically Jewish or not if you actually have had your heart transformed by the spirit and have put your trust in Jesus you're, you are truly circumcised because your heart has been changed. That, that callous part of your heart that didn't want to obey God has now been removed and you can now obey him, which is what he says. He says, this, he, he says we worship by the spirit of God. That's what defines us. It's not whether or not we have a foreskin. It's whether or not we have our hearts transformed by the presence of God. So Paul's very, very He's very strong on this. And I think that's, just, that's, that's a challenge to us, our, to be thinking all the way throughout today. Is there anything in our lives that we, are, that we are thinking, that's the thing that actually makes me acceptable to God? Yeah, I know Jesus. Yeah, I know, I know that side of it. Yeah, but it's Jesus and this other thing that makes me acceptable to God. And Paul would want to say, no, no. The question is, has Jesus changed your heart? Has he transformed your heart? And do you put your confidence in him or in the flesh. So there's two things that Paul says. He says, verse three, we're the real circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus. Something that marks out someone who is truly circumcised, whether you're Jewish or non-Jewish, is whether you boast or put your confidence in Christ. Everyone boasts in something. Okay, boasting is not a very popular word nowadays because boasting often goes hand in hand with arrogance. Okay, you boast about something, you're like, oh, you're basically just showing off. But actually, everyone boasts. Everyone boasts in what they think is going to basically put them in good standing, either with God or with other people. So, for example, generals will boast in the strength of their army. They'll, they'll, go, like, they'll draw the battle lines up, stand against the, the opposite army and say, you have no chance, look at this. We have got thousands of soldiers and cavalry, you have no one. They're boasting in their strength. They're putting their confidence in their strength. Bankers may boast in the amount of assets that they have. Football fans will boast in their team. Like, we crush them. We're going to cr- I mean, you go to a football match, you've basically got a boasting contest going on with the fans. That's, that's what it is. They're, they're saying, we're putting our confidence in this team. You may, actually, a lot of people boast in their home. They put their confidence in the fact that they're homeowners. We own a home. We've made it in life. That's a form of boast. 
School kids, I think, often boast in the group that they hang out with and you want to get in with the, the cool kids. And once you're in that group of the cool kids, you boast in the fact that you're part of that group. Everyone boasts in something because everyone puts their confidence in something. And so the question is, do we put our confidence in the flesh, in that which is human, or do we put our confidence in Christ? And that's Paul's question. He says, we, those of us who have been baptised into Christ and who have been filled with his spirit and whose sins have been forgiven, we are truly part of God's people because we boast in Christ. We put our confidence in Christ and we don't put our confidence in the flesh. We don't put our confidence in that which is merely part of creation. We put our confidence in the creator himself and what he's done for us, which is why we want to make sure we sing songs that are so Christ-focused. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my life, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, or on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Those songs are boasts. We're boasting when we sing those songs. We're boasting in the fact that our confidence is in Christ. Our confidence in what is in what he has done. And so everyone boasts. So the question is, are we boasting in the right thing? And I think that's the challenge, really. Are we, are we boasting in the right thing? Are we putting our confidence fully in Christ? Or is it Christ and something else? Actually, for some of, the, for some of you who are here today who may, you wouldn't call yourself Christians, at that point, it's not Christ and something else. It's what are you putting your confidence in instead of Christ? I think for those of us who know Christ, sometimes you can run, fall into the trap of saying, my confidence is in Christ oh, and my, my ministry, my gifting. My confidence is in Christ, oh, and the fact that I'm married. And I think that's a trap we have to make sure we don't fall into. And what Paul does here, which is interesting, is he basically plays them at their own game. So he says, so these, these teachers who are insisting on the fact that you need to become Jewish to be saved, that you need to obey the law and you need to come under all of that, he says, if we're going to play the who, who has got the best CV when it comes to being top of the notch um, Jewish, I beat them all hands down. He says, okay, I was circumcised on the eighth day. In other words, I was born into this. I didn't become Jewish. I was born as a Jew and I was circumcised on the eighth day, which is what all male children in Judaism are told to be. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, which could mean I'm not like all of these strange Jews who are scattered around the, the Roman Empire who can't actually speak Hebrew, the language of our ancestors. I'm the real deal. Paul's kind of bragging at that point to make a point. As to the law of Pharisee, before he became a Christian, Paul was part of the most strict sect when it came to keeping the law. They would make it their aim to try and keep the law and tell others to keep the law and help others to keep the law. He was zealous about keeping the law as a, almost as a way of saying, I am part of God's people. This sets me apart from all of these other non-Jewish people. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, which might not sound like something to boast in, but when you think that the church or these early believers in Jesus were actually going against God, then actually you could boast in the fact that you were trying to destroy them. Say, I am so zealous for God that I'm trying to wipe out these Christians, these people who believe that this crucified man is the Messiah. I'm getting rid of them. That's how zealous I am. And as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul's saying, if you, if you look at my life and you look at the requirements of the law of Moses in the Old Testament, you line my life up and you line that up, I'm blameless. You can't fault me. In other words, Paul's saying, if you, if you took me to a job interview of who gets most committed member of God's people of the year, I'd be everyone hands down. 
And that's what Paul used to boast in. That's what he used to put his confidence in. But now he doesn't. And we'll look at that in a second. But I suppose here the question I want to ask is, what are we putting our confidence in? What are we... We might not go around bragging. I doubt most of us go around bragging and say, oh, guys, I've got the best car in the world. That makes me like really like high status and so on. We probably don't brag. But what is it we put our confidence in? Is it wealth? What is it actually the fact that we have money in our bank accounts? Maybe a way of phrasing it that might hit home more is, what is it that if we took it away, you would be left thinking, I don't know who I am anymore. I've lost my sense of identity. Is it wealth? Perhaps not when you live in London, but it may well be for some of us. Is it education? I think actually if... Uh, and again, speaking as someone who by worldwide standards is incredibly highly educated. Not, don't, I don't mean that boastfully at all, I just mean genuinely. I've got two university degrees and studying for a third. Compared to most of the world, that is ridiculous. If, but if that was taken away, do I lose my sense of identity? Do I lose my understanding of who I am? What about a job? Is your career the, the thing you put confidence in? You think, yeah, we've got Jesus, but at least we've got the security of knowing that there's a good career. Relationship status. I think this can be a big one. I don't, I don't think our culture idolizes, idolizes marriage. But I think one of the dangers in the church is that we can end up idolizing marriage and almost seeing it as the goal to aspire to. And I think that, that hits two ways. I think for those of us who are either single or married, are we putting some kind of confidence in our relationship status? Are those of us who are married saying, oh, we've, now we can properly begin life. Or those of us who are unmarried saying, you know, those married people who think they're better than the rest of us. Load of nonsense. Paul was single and like using it almost as a, as a way of saying, actually, we're, we're superior. So I think there's, there's that side. But I think there's also, and this is probably, again, speaking of someone who's only been, who's been married less than two years, I think making sure that actually those of us who are married, let's not see getting single people married as making them arrive. Let's not do that. Because I think that can subtly creep in sometimes. Where you say, oh, we're, like, nothing wrong with matchmaking in a, in a healthy way. We're like, actually, that person, I think they get on really well. It's, and if it doesn't work out, no problem. But the kind of almost like, I just feel really sorry for this person because they haven't really made it in life yet. And we need to find them a husband or we need to find them a wife. And I think that, that can turn into something really wrong. That can turn into a, a, a situation where you've got a church full of people who have made it, who are married, and people who are basically waiting to get a true sense of identity. And that's, that's a false gospel. And again, obviously, I'm putting it in much starker terms than it often comes across, but let's just be aware of that. Intellect, ministry, I think for me, that could be a danger. If opportunities to preach and teach got taken away, am I less left with a sense of identity? That's, like, does, does that define me? So I think... There are a few things. So I think this is not just a first century, are you a Jew, are you not a Jew issue. I think this is a huge deal for all of us. But Paul takes that list and he says, but whatever gain I had, I count as, counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count all everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul says, all of that stuff that I had, all of that status... And believe me, that would have been incredible status in, amongst the Jewish people. That would have put him kind of top of the rung. Kind of like he, was, he, he says elsewhere in Galatians, I was progressing in Judaism beyond many of my own age. And he says, all of that I consider loss because of Christ. 
Now, what Paul means here is he's using a bit, he's using basically a, a financial illustration. So I, I would assume probably most of us here are aware of credit and debit, but let me explain quickly for those of us who aren't. Debit is the idea you have something taken away from your account. Credit is the idea you have something put into your account. And yes, I realise that there are factors beyond that for those of you who really know economics, but basically credit, something into your account, debit, something taken away. So when you look at your bank statement, you've got stuff that's going in, stuff that's going out. And we generally prefer it if there's more going in than is going out. That's generally the way, the way we would tend to prefer it. But Paul, the illustration Paul's using here is, before I came to know Christ, all of this stuff, this zealousness for, for being Jewish, this, the fact that I was a true Jew of true Jew, a Hebrew of Hebrews, blameless under the law, I had that in my credit column. That, for me, that, that was something that gave me confidence, security, a sense of not just of my right standing before God, but also the fact that other people who would like to stand in the right before God would look at me and say, wow, if only we could be like Paul. And he says, because of Christ, it's a strange illustration. He says, because of Christ, all of that status has gone from the credit column to the debit column. She's just a way, I, I, think, I think it's straight, he's kind of straining an illustration a bit, but he's basically trying to say, when I met Jesus, that did not look like gain to me anymore. And suddenly I now consider it as loss. Which I don't think, I don't think means that he's saying, actually, you know what, being, being Jewish in and of itself is a, is a terrible thing. That's not what he's saying. He's saying my confidence in that. I used to think that was the, that was the big thing. And now, because of Jesus, I consider it loss. I consider it worth losing. And Paul knew a lot about losing stuff. Okay, remember, he's sat in prison. By this time in his ministry, he has offended enough people from the enough Jewish people who are not Christians to basically make him make him kind of wanted. So he's gone from someone who is persecuting the church, who is zealous to wipe them out, to someone who himself is being persecuted by his own people. And he's sitting in prison. He's lost his reputation. He's, as far as most non-Christian Jews would be concerned, he's blaspheming. And he's sitting there and saying, all of that stuff that I've lost, I consider it rubbish. Which is a typical British way of under-translating something that's a lot stronger that I will not tr- attempt to suggest. Like, this is like, this, this, you know what? All of this stuff that I had, and pardon if this, pardon me if this, sorry, Forgive me if this sounds crude. All of this stuff that I had, it's like skid marks in the toilet. It's just, I mean, that's the strength of the language he's using here. It's stuff that you throw away. It's the, the juice at the bottom of the skip that's just disgusting. The thing, like, this, this is the guy who has gone from saying, this is what I put my confidence in, to saying, non rubbish. All of that status that I had, rubbish. Okay, and just to, again, to qualify as we go, he is not saying being Jewish means that I, that basically being Jewish is like skid marks. He's saying the confidence I put in that, I consider that rubbish now because of Christ. Because he, he says suddenly my credit column in my bank account has now got something far greater. So great that actually when you look at, when you step back and look at the, look at the column, you think I can't even see the original gain that you used to have, Paul. This gain that you have by knowing Jesus is so much greater, so much bigger so much more incredible that I can count everything as rubbish compared to that. Everything pales into insignificance compared to, I love this expression, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul's saying, I've come to know Christ 
And it is so much better than all of that stuff I had before. And I've come to realise he is so much better than that, that it's almost... It's like that has become lost. That's become rubbish in my eyes. Putting my trust in that, what was I thinking? Now I've come to know Jesus. I don't put my confidence in that anymore. I put my confidence in him. And my question to you today, if if you're here, is do you know Christ? Do you know him? Have you met him? Have you you encountered the risen, living Christ? You'd, You'd know if you have. You would know if you have because he would have changed your life. Might not be a bam, out of the blue like it was with Paul. It may have been perhaps felt like a more gradual thing, but you, you know if you've met him because he's changed your desires. You're saying, actually, I would never have desired what I desire now if I hadn't met Jesus. And if you don't, can I plead with you, please look into this. If you're sitting there thinking, no, no this, I, I don't think I have, please look into this. It's too big a deal to, just, to be something you sit on the fence about. It's too big a deal for that. So if that's you today, I'd love to chat to you after... If you're thinking, I want to know more about Jesus, please come and find me and I'll, um, I'll explain more about Jesus and we can pray together. But for those of us who do know Christ, and here's where this passage challenges me, do we want to know Christ more? So I look, This is a passage that I can read and I can go away from thinking, oh my goodness, could I speak in the way that Paul does there? Could I have everything taken away from me and say, yeah, that's pff, rubbish, I know Christ. So as those of us who know Christ, do we want to grow to know him more? Do we, want to find, do we want to have joy, ultimate joy in knowing him? Ultimate joy by knowing that we're in him, that, we've been, that, that on that final day we will be found in him, that God will look at us and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Come in to the inheritance that I've prepared for you. Is, is that something that drives us? And if it isn't, we're going to respond in a bit by singing a a song which would, I, I, I'd love it if we could sing it as a prayer. She's almost saying, God, I, I realise that this is, I don't know if I could say these words for the, all of the time. There are bits in this passage that challenge me, but I want, I want to desire you more. That's a, that's a brilliant prayer to play, pray. God, help me to want you more. So we want to grow in knowing him and the delight of knowing him. But before we wrap up, it's not just that knowing Christ makes any human status look rubbish. So it's not just that Paul's saying, you know what, I had my, my boasting in my own efforts and boasting in Christ, and I've come to realise that boasting in Christ is much better. Not just that. It's actually Paul said, I had my boasting in my efforts, then I found boasting in Christ, and I've realised the two are completely incompatible. I can't, uh, Paul's not saying, I consider everything that I had before as rubbish, but I still do boast in it in, in terms of, I still hold on to it. He's saying, look, you can't have both. You can't put your confidence in your own human achievements, in your own background, in your upbringing, in your financial status, in your relationship status, or any other human thing, whatever that is, you can't put your confidence in that and boast in that and also boast in Christ. It's impossible And Paul says, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish so that I may gain Christ. He realises coming to know Christ involves letting go of all of that boasting. It involves saying, I I can't boast in that and boast in Christ. It's not possible. There's not enough room. Boasting in Christ is the only thing that I can do. And Paul says, actually, I want to be found in him. Not having my own righteousness that comes from the law, which for those of us who are mainly not Jewish, 
We probably don't have a sense of righteousness in the law, but we might have a sense of righteousness standing before God in the right based on human efforts and human backgrounds. He says, that's not what I want. I want the righteousness, the, the declaration, you're in, you're righteous, based on faith in Christ. That's what I want. So Paul's saying, I can't have both. I've chosen the better option. And, that he, and finally, he says, that I may know him. He wants to know Jesus, that I may know him. I've, I've consider it loss. I consider it rubbish that I may gain Christ, be found in him, not having my own righteousness, but that which comes from Christ. And he says, that I may know him. That's my ultimate aim, joy in knowing Christ. I want to know him more. I want to, I want to know him so much. I want to know him. I want to, I want to know the power of his resurrection at work in my life. That's what he says. I want, I want to know that at work in my life. And in one sense, he's, know, he's started to know that already because he's been baptised into Christ and through that, he's died and been raised with Christ. But he wants to know that more because he knows there's a day coming where he will physically be raised from the dead. He says, I want to know that power at work in my life. And another th- But the flip side of that is the other thing he desires. Sounds like a strange thing to desire. He says, I want to know, I want to share in his sufferings and become like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul realised that you don't get resurrection without dying. And the Christian life is basically a gigantic pattern of dying and rising. You die and you rise with Christ in baptism. That's why baptism is so important. It says, don't you know that those of you who have been baptised into Christ have died? You die and you rise, as you rise out of the water, you are raised to new life with Christ. But actually, the way we live our life is a life of dying to ourselves. Of saying, actually, I'm, I am not going to put my own interests first. I'm going to put the interests of others first. I'm dying to myself. It's a life of actually, I think, sharing in Christ's sufferings, I think, can include resisting sin. Sometimes it hurts to resist sin. In fact, if it didn't hurt, there wouldn't be a sense of temptation. But of saying, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go there. I am going to, in a sense, I'm going to suffer in order to know Christ, because I want to know him more. And actually, I think, in the context of the passage, probably what Paul's thinking about primarily is, I want to, I want to know what it is to suffer with Christ, because at the moment, I'm experiencing intense suffering myself. He's in prison. He's been, this is a guy who's been beaten, humiliated. And for some of us here, that may well be what knowing Christ involves. It may well be social humiliation. It may well be physical humiliation, physical pain. It may well be arrest, imprisonment. It may, it may well be that God will call some of us to certain nations where that is what you go through. I know there are people in this room who have undergone that themselves. There's a lot, it's, a, it's a life of dying, but that leads to life eventually. And Paul is so desperate to know Christ more that he says, I want to suffer with him and, be, and become like him in his death so that I can then experience his resurrection and I just want to say a quick word to those of you who are suffering, and it might be social humiliation, it might be more, and you know it's, a, you know it's as a direct result of decisions you've made to follow Christ. Can I encourage you to keep on going? It's not in vain. You did not make that decision to give up that thing that cost you a lot in vain. You didn't make that decision in vain. It is going to achieve an eternal weight of glory that far overshadows everything that you would possibly have got from that, that particular thing that you've given up. So I just want to encourage you, if that's you, please, please hear Paul's heart here. It is worth it. It is worth giving up everything for the sake of knowing him.
And uh, what I'd like us to do, I know that's a, a barrage of, of scripture pouring at us. That's kind of how Philippians works. But what I'd love us to do is I'd love us to be able to, to respond to this um, by singing this song as a prayer. So if the, if the band would like to come up, it's a song that I imagine a lot of you probably will know, although I don't think we've sung it too many times at, at Rev, which is kind of this passage put to words. And I'm going to sing it as a prayer. And I don't know if many of you may want to join me and sing it as a prayer of saying, actually, I, I want to desire you more. I want this song, the stuff that is said in this song, I want this to be the daily walk of my life. I want these to be the words that I can say when I wake up in the morning. I want these to be the, the things that I can say. I want to be able to look at this and not just when I'm feeling spiritually on top of the world, but to always look at this and say, I, I would gladly suffer the loss of everything for the sake of Christ because what I want is to know him more. That's all I want. And I'm going to sing this as a prayer and you may want to join me as we do that. So we'll, if you're able, you might want to stand and we're going to sing this song together and let's make it our prayer to God. God, can I know you more today? Can I know you more? Can I know Christ more? Teach me what it is to share in his sufferings. I don't know what that looks like necessarily in my life, but teach me, Lord God, to to desire knowing the power of your resurrection and the fellowship of your sufferings in my life that I may know you. As we sing this song, let's sing that as a prayer to God together.